This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Are you ready? Yeah, here we go. I'm with you. Listen, Jeremy, how are you? I'm um, trying to breathe for the most part. Jeremy Spake (laughs) is here, and I tell you what. I I am so worried about you, and I'm worried about the people on the West Coast. You're you're in near Portland, Oregon, right? Yeah, um, east side of Portland, um, closer than I want to be to the evacuation zones for the fires right now. I guess the there's it's called the Riverside Fire that's closest um, to town right now. Um, it's kind of a weird situation. Yeah, you can't what, go outside. What's going on? <laughs> yeah i mean i guess about a week ago um um just because it's super dry out here there were some fires i mean to be honest mostly i go to work and come home so i'm not like super cute into uh if unless it's happening right outside of my door i don't necessarily know about it but um about a week ago i i came to learn that there were some fires around and then i guess last sunday and monday um over labor day weekend there were this crazy windstorm um with with you know gust of wind like 40 50 miles an hour and these these fires just got crazy um so now like i don't know a million acres or something like that have burned in in oregon there's fires in washington there's obviously fires in california um the you know i've 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 never been in a situation where it felt like the fires were going to actually you know, the fires themselves are going to be close. Um, we do have fires out here, you know, it's, there's a fire season. It's, it's part of, part of what happens on the West, uh, West coast, but this year is, it's nuts. It's, it's far, far worse. I mean, we got sent home from work last Wednesday and, um, I haven't been back since. I mean, I'm sitting here on Monday, Monday afternoon, like (laughs) not working. so, So because of the air quality, or because you're the proximity to the fires? Um, a little bit of both. The The studio where I work um, is, I mean, at one point it was in the, so they have three three levels of evacuation. It's like a ready, set, go thing. So um, phase one is, hey, look out, this is, this is getting close. Phase two is pack your stuff. And phase three is go. So um, I think Friday, some, I don't know, the time has... <laughs> Yeah, I can imagine. Um, but at, at one point, the studio was in the phase one evacuation zone. Um, I think yesterday it it uh, it went back to <laughs> no just phase. being on the outside. Negative phase. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the, I mean, but the air quality, I don't know. Like the 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 it's like hazardous. It's can it's, you smell um, it? Oh, it's like yeah. I mean, it. <laughs> you look out the window and it looks like. Um, you know, like a winter morning when you wake up and it's all foggy and you're like, Ooh, it's going to be a cozy foggy day. Um, it looks like that, except it's smoke. That's what Mareko mentioned on the last episode of knife talk. He said that he's been going through it too, and he's not close to you at all. Right. I mean, he's like hours away and he says it's like, it's a foggy morning, but it's not fog. It's smoke. And he's been, he and his family have been like, you know, locked up in their house just because just for the safety sake. Yeah, you know, I think um so today's Monday, Friday. 
Friday, Saturday, I don't know. A few days ago, it was like, you kind of walk outside. I've got this, you know, dog I got to take out. So right. you take the dog out and, um, you know, you put on like your COVID mask and it's like, ooh, it's kind of bad. Um, and I think at that point, the the level of, I guess, the toxins in the air was somewhere between 200 and 300, which is uh, awful. Is that bad? Yeah, it's super bad. So like, I, th- from my understanding, um, good air quality is somewhere between one and 50. And, you know, once you get over 200, <laughs> it's it's really really bad. Obviously, I don't mean to and laugh, so, but I mean it's crazy that you're. I mean, what is the what is the general feeling in the in the neighborhood? I mean, are people like preparing to go? And where where do you go? Well, that's the thing, man. I don't know. I mean, the fires are to the east. Um, I think there were some fires out toward the coast, um, but uh, those I don't. I, I don't. I'm not seeing them on the map anymore. Right. So maybe they've been dealt with. Um, but all the smoke is going west, so um, you can't really go east because of the smoke, or because of the fires themselves. You can't really get any relief going west. I mean, I guess you, if you went all the way to the coast, it it might be better. But um, I've been seeing pictures of the coast, and it's you know it looks like red hell out there too. So. And if you go, you know, you, you go up the coast and you just get into fires in Washington. So, um, I, you know, you can't really get to better air right now unless you go, I don't know, like into Montana. Um, but that's but pretty the, bad. You're in, you're, but you're, the, the fire's in the way from you to go to Montana, right? I mean, you're, you're west of the fires. And yeah. Montana's, <laughs> Montana's east of the, the fires. So what do you do? I believe the, um, so interstate 84 goes, um, uh, east to west and, uh, you can kind of go out toward, um, I don't know, I guess Boise is out that way. But, um, my understanding is that there's a fire just south of 84, but it's still open. So you could technically get out, um, if you were. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, my understanding is from all the people that are under evacuation is just to get out, um, get out of the fire zone and get, you know, get into the bad air that everyone else is breathing. Um, yeah, it's, I think today it's like 500, the air quality is like in my area of, of town, which is, um, I think the, the measuring stops around 500. And after that, it's just like, hold your breath oh jesus louise <laughs> i you know i have a friend we have a friend who actually listened to the podcast went to college with her name is Alyssa, and she's my buddy and she's listening to this right now and she was on a you know my wife and we all have these friends who we went to college with and they do you know a zoom check-in cocktail party every so often and alissam this is alissam's at least she lives in northern california hmm. and probably i think don't don't text me Alyssa. i'm begging you don't text me to correct me what i'm going to tell you just Listen, enjoy it, and just you know, I'm. Te- I I think you're two hours north of of San Francisco, but just don't text me. It's fine. <laughs> we all know that I don't. You know, my don't worry about it. It's fine. And it's this is her third year of being. Um, you know, she had a car packed up with a go bag. She's listening to whatever they say in Northern California and she's ready to go. She's got a dog too and she's ready to go. She doesn't know where she's going to go. She says she's going to go maybe to her office or something like that. And it, I just don't understand. And I said, when they got off the phone, I was looking at Hillary, I'm like, what is this woman going to do? What are these people going to do? 
why it's to the point where I'm just like, my kid is starting to look at colleges and she's like, I want to go to California. I'm like, I don't think I want you to go to California. Yeah. I just, I mean, I just don't know what is the, I mean, all right. So let's just say, let's just say, you know, I'm, you're talking to an ignorant northerner. Fine. I'm not going to problem with that. I just don't understand what, besides the firefighters, what is going to put this out? And the fact that there's a season, what prevents the season from ending? Well, I mean, in, in Oregon, you know, people think of, of Portland as this rainy town, which right. it is um, for a lot of the year, but it basically doesn't rain in the summertime. So um, it just gets increasingly dry and, um, huh. and then it starts to rain again a little bit here and there, and then it starts to rain, you know, it's basically gray and rainy for most of the late fall and winter. And then it gradually stops. And then there's just, you know, once again, there's no rain in the summer. So, you know, I've been here, I've been in Portland for, I think 13 years. And, um, it has gotten like the last two or three years ago, whatever year that, um, the big eclipse was, Oh yeah. Um, there were fires at that point, so like most of <laughs> that must have most... been under four years, right? That must have been no, yeah, three years, three and change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I, I, um... <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I know what you're gonna say. Don't worry I, about it. it feels like there was um, somebody that stared right at it, and I can't remember. <laughs> oh, um, come on, man. <laughs> but uh, but um, you know that was the last time because that was um, I believe the fires at that point were out. Um, in the Columbia River Gorge, right. and and it it all the smoke blew into town. And it was kind of nasty for a couple of days. It was like, ooh, you can't see across the bluffs. You can't see the West Hills anymore, um, which seems very quaint uh, compared to outside now. So that's like that's the worst it's been since I've been here. Um, and I mean, this is I I've <laughs> this is nuts. I don't know. Um, yeah. I, this on top of pandemic, on top of political uncertainty, on top of you know rioting and pro- protesting and rioting in Portland, yeah, it just seems like your neck of the woods might be like the drain, <laughs> the drain right now to to a a full tub of nonsense. It's ground zero. It's yeah. I don't know. It's um, I mean we're we're basically under lockdown again. You know, like I was yeah. um looking for a well anyway I, I was, lockdown for you mean lockdown for the because of the fires or lockdown because of COVID nineteen. Uh, the fires, like yeah. stuff is closed. Like you can't, Oh, you can't, oh, the supermarkets are closed and stuff. Well, I mean, the supermarkets never even closed really in the, in the COVID, but, um, yeah, like we were trying to, um, get some takeout last night, just like, um, and everybody, you know, like nobody was open. Right. Um, I mean, you know, it's, it's not shut down, shut down, but, uh, I, I was surprised I had to run an errand, um, last night and the amount of stuff that was closed, um, you know, rightly, it's right. <laughs> you can't breathe outside. I mean, it it you know, like to go outside, I'm basically wearing my respirator that I would wear if I was, you know, grounding down a, a block of wood. Right. Um But yeah, it's it's um Portland. Who who would have thought that this would be you know, ground zero for the apocalypse. Not many people. But I want to back it up now because you're not because you said you were here, but in Portland for 13 years. You're originally from Atlanta. Yeah, actually, that's where I met you a few years ago at the Blade Show. But <laughs> I want to know, growing up in Atlanta, it, it, I, I've only been to Atlanta. I only been to Atlanta. My uncle, my family used to live in Atlanta, and I'd visit. 
and I went to the Blade Show a couple times, and then there was a couple reasons why I went down to Atlanta. What was it like growing up in Atlanta? And I'm asking this for this reason. There is terrible public transportation in, in Atlanta. <laughs> How do you get around in Atlanta as a kid? Um, no, I mean, Atlanta is is very similar to L.A. Um, well, I should start off by saying I, I didn't grow up in Atlanta. I grew up in a what was then a small town um, about 45 minutes south called Noonan. Um, uh, Noonan is famous only for being the home of uh, country singer Alan Jackson. Oh, look at you. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I grew up basically in a very um, isolated, like, nothing to do i think when i was um either a junior or a senior in high school like our county was the highest and um teen pregnancy so nice. congratulations not a whole lot to do in oh. town oh, um sorry but sorry. but yeah in in you know me and my <laughs> friends basically once i could get out of the house we would just go into atlanta and go to shows like two or three nights a week um on average just to get out of town and start you know, interacting with the real world. Um, but yeah, you have to drive like Atlanta is, is very, very much like LA. Um, like I, you just don't ride the Marta is the name of the uh, transit and it's, it's basically, it goes up and it goes across and it was awful. Yeah. There's no way to use it unless, I mean, obviously a lot of people rely on it because of, income levels and whatnot, but, right. um, you really have to rely on the buses more than the trains. And, um, yeah, I don't know there. <laughs> I mean, I'm spoiled because I grew up in Manhattan and you could take the train to go anywhere. And it was really like, or a walk or a taxi cab. You, it became, or, you know, if you want to get out of the city, you could take the train. You didn't need, I mean, I didn't have a driver's license since I went to college just because what the fuck do I need to drive? I mean, pardon me, but what do I need a driver's license for? I, yeah, no, I didn't need to drive. I didn't need to drive. And I just was always, I was very spoiled because, you know, the world is your oyster when you're there. And, and I'm always, I always wonder, I remember when we went to Atlanta, I was like, God, how does anyone get around? You become stuck in your own little community. And it's like, until you can drive. I mean, my kid right now is stuck because she, you know, I mean, there's not a lot to do in the town we live in, but, and with COVID-19 and everything like that. But at the same time, I can tell that once she gets her, her license, I think that she's going to really kind of blossom. The other thing is before COVID-19 hit, we started to let her and her friends take the train into Manhattan because she really understands Manhattan. She knows the trains, she knows where to go. And it became this kind of concept of uh, freedom for her. So I just wonder, like, growing up in a small town with no real tr public transportation, how anyone gets anything done. I mean, you know, I, I had most of my friends in high school were a couple years older, so I didn't even get my driver's license, I think, until I was almost 18 because I could just right. get rides. Um, right. So, but yeah, it, it's just a, it's a driving culture. Um, uh, I, I would drive my um my dad's Dodge Caravan sweet into town and uh you know when my band started playing music I'd load that thing up and drive stuff around and uh and then I think that got wrecked I don't know what happened to that but I ended up like <laughs> I had this old it was like a 1970 um Chevy custom pickup truck that was 
I think it had been my grandfather's or something. And right. somehow that became like what I was driving. And, uh, I remember my girlfriend in high school lived like kind of out in the country and it would, it would cost me $5 in gas. And that was cheap gas. Um, just to like go pick her up, do whatever, go into town and then take her home is like $5 in gas. They got that such must bad have been, mileage. You must've been getting like, I, I'm sure I, cause I, I think we're kind of similar in age. When I was in Ohio, the cheapest I ever got gas was like 89 cents, 99 cents a gallon. So I'm imagining you're getting like five gallons. Yeah, yeah. That, that's and you're probably exactly doing right. like 13 miles an hour, 13 miles a gallon, and you got to go a long way for this, for your girlfriend. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah. I think the cheapest, uh, yeah, when I started driving, gas was around 90, 91 cents. Right. And if you went to that one town, the next town over, you could get it for like 88. So that gets you into music. Now, well, I'm interested. One of the things that I never really I knew about you is, and you were, you know, gracious enough to send me some kind of some 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 of the samples of your music. You were the, you were in a in an you did a lot of like contemporary rock music. A lot of a lot of people like um, when you sent me that you're the bands that you were in. I was like blown away because <laughs> they're they're super contemporary. And at the time, I'm saying I'm saying like early, you know, late '90s, early 2000s, it fit within the confines of the music. And I'm imagining the music of uh, Atlanta, the Atlanta rock music. I mean, I, when I heard your first band, it sounded it had like. And pardon me because I'm not. I I just you know I know a little bit about me music, but I'm not anything. And don't be offended when I say this. I, I felt a little bit of Smashing Pumpkins, a little bit of Nirvana. Um, there was definitely a little Weezer involved. It was very like, it was really great sounding music. High intensity, very moody, just really completely a bullseye for music at the time. How did you get into music? Oh, man. Was that um, was that not a good? Was that a not no? A no, good, that's great. That's I, I think that's spot on. Especially you know, oh, I no, was, like I thought you were going to be like, God, Jeff, I didn't want to be like that. That was terrible. It's not that at all. No, all of those all of those references were definitely there. But you know, like in high school, I was in. I graduated high school in '97, so um, you know, all of that stuff was going on. Not I remember. I mean, dude, I. I don't know what it's like now, but um, we had the most incredible college radio station. Um, uh, so I went to Georgia State University in Atlanta, and they um, they have I don't I guess they um, they had a broad reach, like they had a really powerful antenna. So like down in my town, uh, I could get uh, WRAS album eighty eight, and um, for for the time that I was growing up, they had such amazing programming and they would play just the coolest, weird stuff. You know, like I, I, um, I remember when I, I don't know, it was like the year it came out in 1994 hearing on college radio, um, the song in the garage by Weezer. And, uh, you know, this is like several months before they became like on MTV and stuff. Right. And that, like, it blew my mind. I don't know. It's like somebody taking that song from out of my head and played it back for me because they knew I'd love it. It just, right. it was exactly what I wanted. And um, I don't know. That, that, 
obviously they became huge and kind of embarrassing at this point in their career. But um, for for me at that time, it was it, it cracked my world open. Um, and I was already playing music. I think my and to be honest, I can't remember ever really like saying like I want to play music. Um, but it must have been apparent because my my dad bought me a bass guitar. Um, I was maybe twelve. Why a bass? I don't know. I mean, I must. I it's weird because I obviously obviously must have said something about it, but I don't remember like. I don't know. Because the bass I, guitars I, are, I mean, I, I'm not, I mean, bass guitars are electric, right? Yeah, yeah. And So your and, first guitar was a bass guitar? Yeah. Was he interested in music at all? Oh, my dad's, yeah, he's he's a guitar player. Yeah, maybe secretly he wanted, oh, an, he a, wanted a an accompanist. Oh, he wanted a Yeah. Right, but um, right, no, he's, he's, like, some of my earliest memories, um, I have a very vivid memory of being very, very young, like maybe four or five, sitting at a campfire, my dad playing uh, Paradise by John Prine. And uh, I thought you were, for some reason, I was like, oh, my God, he's playing David Lee Roth. That's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. He's the greatest dad of all time. Yeah, he's me? strumming like, on his acoustic guitar. Can you just guitar. imagine? With he's, uh, got the double, he's got the double, dad's got the spandex on, and he's playing Paradise. He's this got like the, uh, the paradise. The, was, oh God, was, didn't that video it. have like the mountain climbing or something? Oh, was that the greatest? Was that the greatest <laughs> stupid video of all time? Is that the greatest? You, oh, I'm sorry for interrupting, right? So, you're, so oh, your, no. dad, your dad's playing David Lee yeah, Roth by the He's campfire. playing, uh, yeah, John Prine's <laughs> cover of David Lee Roth. Yeah. This must be just like Living yeah. in Paradise. Oh, what a song. <laughs> oh, man. But um, yeah, so my, you know, like, I had music in my life you know, from day one, um, my dad's kind of a, um, you know, mostly acoustic, um, player at that point. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I ended up with this bass guitar. I, I must've been listening to a lot of, um, I mean, the thing about early nineties music is a lot of it was bass guitar driven, like the early, like red hot chili peppers right. and Jane's addiction. Um, uh, yeah, I guess that's when I mean that's for me that was the time of my life when I started to enjoy music. I felt like when I was a kid my dad didn't really want me to listen to popular music and then 80s it was true. It was, Mick Jagger. Oh dude, he 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 fucking he blamed society's ills on popular music. And then once my parents got divorced and I got to the age where like, well, you can't really prevent me from doing certain things. Like I kind of missed the early MTV days. It really didn't weren't allowed I wasn't really allowed to watch it. But by the time I got to the nineties, you know, my dad was remarried and it was like he doesn't care about what i'm listening to at this point he's trying to like let's let's try to make sure marriage number four is okay i don't want to worry about what my son's listening to so i got like i mean it was very i mean the 90s music really resonated with me because i was a latchkey kid and i was like kind of on my own my mother was working and then she was kind of away a lot so i was raising myself and the nirvana and the red hot chili peppers and and um I really identify with it. I really identify with that in Smashing Pumpkins and all those. I really identify with that with that sound. So I can understand why you would too. Yeah, I you know, like once I started taking um like playing bass and taking lessons, I had this um 
you know, you have these people that come into your life and give you a couple little seeds and they start to grow. Um, the guitar teacher at the local music store, um, he just like, he had some, some information for me, you know, like he gave me, I, I remember, I probably still got it somewhere. There's a cassette tape. One side was, um, Smashing Pumpkins Gish. Yeah. And, uh, the other side was My Bloody Valentine Loveless. Cause I was coming in there with like Primus and like, right. I don't know, probably some Jane's Addiction song or, you know, like teach me how to play, you know, three days. And, um, and but so you, he's like, but oh, you this... wanted, but you, but you brought in the bass that your dad gave you. Yeah. 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 So I, you know, I took lessons from him, um, for a couple of years. Um, and that, you know, I, like I have these like friends from school and we'd play together and obviously having a bass was like, oh yeah, <laughs> you can come over. Cause everyone else yeah. just played guitar. And um, so you get so... to play with a lot of friends for that, for that reason, man, I got into some weird situations, you know, like. It, it, to to be somewhat um big capable and oh, okay. oh, wait, that you're gonna tell you're gonna oh. be vague about a story that's my move is vague and then tell the whole thing right? no but it's like capable. to be to be capable and like you know at the thing that no one else does like oh well you know bring him over so i'd end up like i mean it's really like in the old days and this is 20 years ago like you wouldn't necessarily have a DJ at your party. You might hire a band. Right. And uh, there were these like groups of much older guys that had these party bands. And, um, you know, my, my guitar teacher would be like, well, do you want to go and do this gig with these uh, guys and get like 50 bucks? So I'd like learn all these like Credence Clearwater Revival songs and like Tom Petty, you know, all these like super easy songs, but I'd, like play some county fair thing with these older guys like in the middle of the afternoon on a Sunday. Um yeah, I just situations like that where Did you feel like, great doing it? <laughs> it felt like a dork. Really? Why? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I mean it felt it felt I I mean it was a real confidence booster, I'd tell you that, to have like these grown ups and you're like I don't know, fifteen, sixteen, like, hey, we're gonna give you money to play music and trust that you're gonna be able to learn um, learn how to play like 30 songs just by kind of looking at some charts. Um, which by the way, I definitely could not do right now. Um, but yeah, it was, I mean, it was, it must've been a degree of like fun. I mean, especially if you really knew what you're doing and then the people that you were with were having a good time. I can, I mean, that's what that's the, isn't that the dream that every boy or young girl has where they're on the stage and that everyone's cheering and you're playing and you're not fucking up and they're not staring at you like you're making a huge mistake. Well, like many I things, I wasn't going to curse. I wasn't going to curse. <laughs> I really am letting it loose. That's Let it loose. I don't that's care. How com that's how comfortable I am with you, Jeremy. There we go. Yeah, I don't care. Jeremy Spake, Road to Victory. Okay. <laughs> no, but I mean, I was super self-conscious up there being like, uh, I mean, especially the first few times, um, you know, confidence is not my uh, forte. Um, I find and, that very difficult to believe. Well, it's a little bit of a different story now. I mean, I've I've taken some some uh, uh, what would you call them? Drugs? Oh no, probably not enough drugs. I didn't. I was dude. Okay, going back to high school and all okay. that young stuff. Like I was such a good kid. And I think that's why a lot of these like um, 
I ended up working in the guitar store where my teacher did his lessons from. So, right. um, you know, I wound up, and a lot of that was, I think, because my, my boss there, like, kind of realized I wasn't a fuck up and, like, I wasn't out right. partying all the time. Was like, you were oh, dependable. You were dependable. Is, well, I think he targeted the, like, oh, this is a kid that doesn't really have fun. He just goes and has band practice with his friends. Yeah. Uh, he's probably not going to get into trouble. And also, he's probably going to spend all of his money here, here. which was <laughs> I love 100% it. true. I love it. Um, yeah. So, um, I forget where I was going with that. Um, oh yeah. But I just, yeah. Being, being, uh, being a little older now, like, man, I probably should have fucked around a little bit more back then. So your first real band, I'm basically saying a real band because that's what you sent me was a band called flux capacitor. <laughs> and I'm, I'm I, I, obviously it comes from the, the, the back to the future is a back to the future reference. I would imagine. I'm assuming. Uh, correct. It's a pretty fair, pretty, all right. Good guess. So it was real. I was, it really dawned on me. And I know we haven't even gotten to the fact that you're a very accomplished knife maker, but this, the music really spoke to me because I know you pretty, I don't know you well enough that I can make some certain connections, but this, the music itself was very much along the lines of you know, Weezer. There was, it was like, you know, in, you know, hard, you know, uh, I don't speak well about music, but it was very like, you know, like intense and um, very, uh, very distinct. But then you had these synthesizers in the background. Everything was very, I felt like it was very, it wasn't, it was more of an intellectual style of music. It wasn't just like, let's do chords, like, let's just play just exactly like Nirvana and then just hope for the best. There was, it was, it was incredibly well thought out. You could tell that there was a lot of thought into the music. And when I listened to every different song, I was just like, wow, man, everything was very clear and you were the singer and it, everything was very, I felt like it was incredibly disciplined music, even to the point where uh, the way it was recorded and the way it sounded, it was very, very disciplined. And the kind of music that you would see at the time, like I could hear that, that music on the radio. Yeah, well, thanks. Um, I think that's a pretty, um, pretty good assessment and um probably the string of band members saying i'm not going to do this anymore uh would agree with the discipline stuff um yeah I, I always took things a little too seriously um i think for being you know 17 or what you were 17 in flux capacitor oh no well i was i was probably 18 when i started that so okay so i was playing bass with you know i had another band before that in high school that was you know it was yeah, not super different, but I was like playing bass and kind of the side guy. And I started teaching myself how to play guitar um, and writing my own songs and like recording them on a four track. So a lot of times, like especially the first couple of years of playing in Flux Capacitor, it was like I would have already like I would have recorded the drums, the bass, the guitar, the keyboards and, and the vocals. And I'm basically like giving a, a mixed down cassette tape to a friend right. saying, Hey, do you want to be in my band? Um, learn play these parts. This. Yeah. Play only these parts. Yeah. And I, I get the feeling that you were, you were, uh, you were very controlling <laughs> of the music. You don't take it, take it as a compliment. You, you knew what you wanted to do and then you just had to get people on to get on board. Yeah. And you know, that was, and 
I think I did that. I mean, I'm not a perfectionist, but I, I guess I do want things to be the way that I want them to be. And uh, collaboration under those circumstances can be, can be hairy. All right. I'm going to make a quick jump, just a quick jump, just because of the, 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 the connection here. You are a very established knife maker. You make, you're award-winning knife maker. You are a well-received and well-respected knife maker. And you focus on, I'm going to just be, you know, I'm just going to be mamby-pamby about it. You kind of focus on the style of the, the knife called the Puko, right? Correct. The Puko is, what is it, Swedish? What is it, Denmark? <sighs> where, what kind of, where does it come from? Some, some uh, Scandinavian situation? There you go. Yeah, it's, you know... I did a whole talk about this at Blade West, so don't get me started. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. Well, it's, but, but everything about it, everything about the way you make knives is extraordinarily detailed. Like, I know you don't think you're a perfectionist, but when you said I'm not a perfectionist in the music, when I heard the music after, you know, years of looking at your work, which is everything's very immaculate, very immaculate and very clean. And what I love about your knives are they're very the size because they're all very approachable and i'm talking about approachable from the artistic sense of you it's small enough you can see it in your hand it doesn't look as it looks it's impressive but it looks like the when somebody has it in their hand they think i can take this home this is something that i can attain to it's high level it's beautiful they're great and it reminded me when I listened to your music, I found these these similarities between the way you make your knives, and the way you're making music, and I could all I could tell was because the knives were very pristine. You say you're perfectionist, I think you're full of it, but I I could never do what you do, and I don't think I'd want to. I don't think it's my personality. But the music itself, when I started listening to music, and I listened to track after track, and track after track, and this is the first band, Flux Capacitor. This isn't the second band, which is more like a metal band. All I could think of is, I wonder how, I wonder if his bandmates were on board with him. I wonder if he was, I wonder if he was, his expectations were too high for some of his bandmates. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, that's, yeah, nailed it. Um, you know, because, uh, and I, by the time that band broke up, um, it was, it had become more collaborative and, right. uh, and I think, you know, for better and for worse, because I was kind of loosening my grip, oh, excuse me, and, and inviting, um, inviting more collaboration, but also, um, I think that was, that was making room for the fact that other people weren't necessarily taking it as seriously as I right. was. And so, um, the whole That's thing the is the hardest part about collaboration. Yeah. yeah. You can't, and it's to the point now where with your work, especially this is the perfect venue for someone who knows what they want and knows what they want to do and knows how to do it. And the hardest part, collaboration for certain people, creative people, is very, very hard because you have a vision of what you know what it should be like. You have a vision of what you have to know it's going to do. And you don't want to have to depend on other people. So the difference between being in a band where, I mean, I'm just listening to the, I, I'm trying, I'm just, in my mind, I was thinking, how can we get this music onto this, on this podcast? Because it is, like I said, the, I could hear this music on K-Rock back in the 90s. I could hear this music on uh, WFUV here up in, up in wherever, college radio station. It, yeah. it, it was, it hit all the notes of what a popular music would be, but not, I mean, 
Smashing Pumpkins, they had a few pops hits that were like popular, but it was much more of like, you know, respected, kind of like similar to like, you know, the Foo Fighters and stuff like that, where it's not as like poppy and like everything has to be a pop chart hit. I found that it must have been very, very hard to to get to the point where, I mean, the music is so crisp and it's the recordings. Everything is very, very like, there's not a lot of, this isn't the Allman Brothers. There's no like fooling around. There, no, <laughs> there were no solos where, you know, you just let it happen and it might be different today and tomorrow. I could tell like, I would imagine that it was very, very uh, regimented. Yeah. I mean, part of it, you know, even going back to when I was, you know, making those four track recordings, um, and this is generational too, you know, like I did grow up in the sort of grunge generation where, um, you know, virtuosity was not necessarily cool. So the, oh, my friends, super that, not cool. Are you yeah. kidding me? It's that's my, general, <laughs> generation X does not want virtuosity at all. No. And so my friends that were a couple years older, like they could play guitar solos and knew how to do that. And I thought it was lame. So, right. you know, obviously now I wish I could play better than I can. So I, I, I'm I'm missing out on some tools, but um, I became much more interested in composition, and I think I've always sort of pictured myself more as a composer. I mean, that sounds pretentious. Never mind. Um, but no, you know, I just no. like sort of more more focused on the the arrangement of the song and like, does it sound heavy? Is it like I heavy and melodic are kind of my my two things. I'm not really um necessarily a heavy metal fan and 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 and, you know in the tradition like i could give a shit about metallica but i do like heavy guitars are the coolest thing in the world um i felt that in flux capacitor i felt that i felt that the the the, it was really like what is the expression not heavy guitars it was almost like it was like valiant there was like they were really like they were strong it was i mean it was really I what I did love the most was the the contrast between the guitars, the strong guitars, and the and their your synthesizer. I yeah. really, really, really enjoyed how they played together. And there was it's almost it was like like I said, it seemed like it was a very intellectually composed situation. Okay, it wasn't reckless. There was it was super. You knew exactly what it was going to be from the get go, and that kind of creativity boggles me. Well, I mean, I, it's not like a recipe that I d- came up with, you know, I think there was, um, I feel like there was a Matthew Sweet song somewhere in the early nineties where there was like a really cool synthesizer lead. And then, um, like there was a couple of things I picked up on the, the old bassist from Weezer had a side project called the rentals. that was just totally like fuzzed out heavy sounding guitars and basses with, um, with a prominent, like analog synthesizer um in it and uh and that was like oh wow that that's kind of the coolest thing i've ever heard because the like the fuzzy guitars complements the kind of weird analog um monosynth sound it just i don't know to me it's it's a perfect match um and you know i've still got (laughs) all that stuff um that i you know don't play with quite enough anymore but um i that that was just i don't know something i fell into and couldn't walk away from i love it did you think that you were going to be a professional musician 
Um, in the like, yeah, yes, but no. I mean, my expectation was always like in in high school and you know up until I was like maybe twenty twenty one. Like I'm just gonna be like a band guy, and you know whatever I do for money will be like whatever that turns out to be. Um, like the priority was always music. Um, obviously when I started focusing on my uh, degree in graphic design, um, like the amount of time that consumed uh, right. was <laughs> surprising. <laughs> so things started to change. Um, when I entered the workforce, you know, and, um, but even up to the point that I moved out to Portland, like the band was still kind of the primary, um, primary propulsion in my life. Um, so was flux capacitor, you guys were touring locally or, you know, I mean, we would play regionally. We did a couple of like spring break, like we'd get, I don't know, two weeks and travel around and, um, you know, at one point it was two bands, <laughs> two, eight. So, um, eight people in a Econoline one fifty, which is like the small one. And, uh, we did that for almost two weeks in the middle of the summer, um, during a heat wave. It was, Ugh. and no air conditioning in the van. It was awful. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yeah. And then um, how long was the tour? Um, I think that was, it was. 10 days. Oh, okay. Something like that. So, I mean, yeah, I say touring and it's like, you know, real musicians hear that and go, that's a tour. Look, listen to me. Come on. Don't worry about them. Don't worry about them. We're talking to you. I get it. So, so, and I'm not going to get lewd. I'm just asking, did you have like fans and groupies who are following you around? And I'm saying this for this reason, and I'm going to just back it up. I went to school with a friend whose band opened up for the spin doctors in New York city. And we used to, go because they were our friends and we were going to go see this and then they opened for the spin doctors before the spin doctors got famous and then we found this other band that we used to follow around only because they sounded great i don't know i couldn't tell you the name right now but i was just like these guys are gonna get famous it's gonna be like you know whatever so we there were people who were following these little small local bands around and they were like it got to the point where we we're just like they're groupies some of them are groupies were, did you have like fans and groupies following you around or i'm not telling i'm not suggesting that you know, you had, you know, flonk, flank, flonks, flonks, flank, flanges or, or pharynx or flank, whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, uh flings. So no, I was just going to say just large groups of, you know, people oh. throwing themselves at you. Phalanx, um, phalanxes. Uh, in some cases I did have, uh, small groups of people throwing themselves at me after shows. And those, uh, those people would be young men who were interested in what pedals I was using, uh, uh what, what synthesizers were on. Yeah. So no, lame. none That's of not that. what you yeah. want. No, no, you're looking no, no. For like, you're looking for like, you know, young, you know, young women who are, who are, who want, who want to, who want to get a little, you know, space to face time with Jeremy Spake, lead singer of the Flux Capacitor. No. Well, no, and part of I, I, I part of that was that my what are you giving it up? My girlfriend at the time oh, well, uh, was uh, uh, also fronting another prominent band in our local scene, so it was not. Uh, yeah, people knew that I was spoken for. Did she have groupies? Uh, probably more than I did. Did it, did it bother you? <laughs> it would have bothered no. the shit out of me. Uh, I don't know. I'm usually pretty confident in a relationship, but, um, it was, it was, um, 
yeah, don't be in a band. Don't be in a relationship with a, uh, someone else in a, in a band that you're competing with in the same scene. It's, uh, uh, it can, yeah. you are not wrong. <laughs> One of my first girlfriends, my first main girl, my first love of my life was an artist. And we were in art school together. We were in college together. We were artists. And it was like, at first I thought, this is going to be great. She's an artist and I'm an artist. And it was so competitive. And it got like, and I didn't even mean it for it to be, and I don't think she did either, but it just got, it was uncomfortable. And, it, and to the point where one of the teachers had said something along the lines of to, to her, like, maybe you should not be so influenced by your boyfriend. And I think that that kind of, I would be, inf- if, she, if I had heard that, I wouldn't have been too happy about it either. So um, I would imagine that that can be very difficult. Yeah. Especially when like the, the, the promoters and booking agents in town, like kind of know that you're a couple and like there was a, <laughs> There was this one instant uh, instance where this guy was like, "Oh, you know, this cool band's gonna come and play. Like, do you, uh, do you guys or their band want to play um, to to open?" And you know, like she wasn't standing there; she, he was just talking to me. Right. And uh, you know, like I knew that there was something going on where they couldn't actually do it. And I was like, "Yeah, we'll do it." Anyway. Um, uh, that turned into a big mess. Uh, who needs that? Yeah, not me. It just seems like a lot of it. So, so you you finish off. Flux capacitor is gone, and then you head out to Portland. What makes you want to go out to Portland? It's mm. a big difference from Atlanta. Yeah. Is it was it the music scene you wanted to go to where you thought the music was coming from? Now, so like, okay, um, romantic. I'm going to, I'm going to try to make this as brief as possible and still make sense. Um, so I went, I was doing graphic design, um, at Georgia state. And, uh, one of my friends that I'd met, um, so I had a, um, a, a teacher who was doing like, uh, a sculpture project for the, Atlanta airport is like a public yeah. arts. He got this grant and, um, he'd asked me and another guy in class, like, Hey, do you want to come and assist me on this project? Which I expected was like over the weekend, but it turned into like a nine month project. Oh. So, which was awesome. Like this oh. was one of the most formative, um, experiences. Cause it taught me like, Hey, look, um, this is a project that is large in scale. It's large in scope. It's going to take a lot of time. You're going to work on this like for hours a day and you're not going to see much progress. And, um, and you know, over time is building these ants, like these, um, ants that were like, I don't know, they're about 18 inches across and we built almost 200 of them and they were installed on the ceiling in the, uh, baggage claim area of the Atlanta airport. Wow. That's a yeah, strange to sit. That's a strange uh, sculpture to be approved in the Atlanta airport. Yeah, it, infestation it was, isn't normally what I would think. Of. I've gotten kicked off of major sculpture sites for less, uh, you know, infestation sculptures. You know? Well, it was based on something that he had done um, prior. The, the artist's name is Joe Perigini. Um He's an awesome artist and a hell of a guy. Um, uh, and it's called brute neighbors and the, you know, it's like a commentary on these, you know, like I, well, I'm not going to speak for him. You can look it up, but um, 
it was it was controversial. We actually installed that um, I think August of two thousand and one, and so um, I remember being in the airport. Like you have to install artwork from like midnight until six in the morning. So we'd go in there, and you know we'd have this cherry picker. Like <laughs> we had a cherry picker extended all the way, and a ladder on top of that. And so just like oh. on your tiptoes on this ladder, trying to drill into the ceiling of the airport, and this thing is like wobbling back and forth. Um. But yeah, once it got, um, once it was up and installed, people were complaining and writing, you know, writing letters to the airport people saying this is like disturbing, this is creepy, it's scary, it's yeah. distasteful. <laughs> and then like three weeks later, 9 11 yeah. happened. So oh people my God. stopped complaining. Yeah. Oh my God. All that's, <laughs> that's, that was literally the, uh, how do you stop Karen's? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 9-11 stops a Karen. Yeah. You know, all of a sudden these little slights become. Uh, and, and speaking, just really real quick in regards to some, something similar, is on nine eleven. I got a call from our general manager of the restaurant, and he said that he someone left a message on nine eleven saying, "I understand the twin towers were hit, but I have a reservation at seven, and I expect you to be open." It was literally like, and she, he kept it, he kept the, he kept the message and then he called her up and he says, madam, I don't need, you know, we, everyone closed down, but it was just like, don't threaten my restaurant. You're not, your, your reservation is canceled. You don't, you don't need to come here. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that was, uh, that's super crazy. So what, so, so the sculpture gets pulled, you know, the, oh, yeah. the sculpture, blah, blah, blah. And then, so uh, this guy that I uh, was working with, not, not the artist himself, but the, uh, this other assistant, like we're just sitting there like talking all day. And, um, we kind of come to the understanding that we're both fans of stop motion animation, like big fans of nightmare before Christmas and Ray Harryhausen. And, um, we kind of cook up this idea to get Joe, to, uh, who was one of our teachers to sponsor a um, independent study for us to make this short film. And so me and Kelly, uh, my friend, we kind of embarked on this whole, like, let's figure out how to do this. And um, that just sort of propelled this whole other hobby of me, like figuring out how to machine. Well, figuring out what, what is machining? How does that work? And making these little um, ball and socket armatures for the, animation puppet and um you know that just kind of became a hobby that consumed all of my free time where i wasn't you know in school or playing uh music and that's just a hobby i guess i started that around two yeah around 2000 and um you know next thing i know i've got like a desktop mill and a desktop lathe in my living room and i'm you know, like figuring out how to do this, um, <laughs> like janky machining in my home. Um, and then you're but, making armatures out of aluminum or, um, generally steel. Like you can, I mean, there's a couple of, uh, I mean, it's funny. Like I didn't, I didn't really know anything about anything. Um, right. I remember, like I drilled a hole through an aluminum box one time in high school and I was like, you can drill through metal. Yeah. What? <laughs> I thought metal was like impervious. Impervious. Yeah. yeah. It was like, yeah. you thought you had to be the incredible Hulk to do anything to right. metal. Um, but you know, I, I just didn't know much about materials. Um, 
So um, I, you know, stumbled. It's funny. I uh, one of my one of my friends at work. He's an animator. Um, in in that late '90s period, he started this forum, which is, you know, I owe owe a lot to the people on that forum um, for learning, you know, all the stuff I learned. But um, you know, this forum kind of went offline for a long time. But he he actually found the archive and reposted it couple of weeks ago and he's told me about that and i looked up this archive and i can literally find like a thread where i'm uh i'm like hey guys i how do you braze aluminum to steel <laughs> and like you know you can't or you right. don't it's um i didn't know anything about anything um but uh luckily i learned a lot about a lot and um it uh it it kind of turned into a career so you know fast forward to 2006 um i um i wound up getting an offer to work on Coraline um out here in portland and uh it's a very popular movie yeah it was um famous movie yeah it's uh henry selick the director of nightmare before christmas and obviously neil gaiman wrote the original um novella so yeah, it was, I mean, that was the biggest thing I could imagine doing. Like, it's kind of like one of those shots in the dark where you're just like, well, why not? Why not ask? And then when it, you know, when it came through, uh, <laughs> I was pretty dumbfounded. Um, yeah. So it, what did you do on those films? Like, did you build the, the structures? I don't, I don't know. I guess I'm fascinated because when I was when I was in when I was in college and I was an art major, my dad was like super not thrilled with me, and he saw that I was doing all this welding. He says, "You know, maybe you should go to Hollywood. Maybe you could work on you know movies, or you could work on sets, or you know weapons or stuff like." Because my at the time my work was very much along the lines of it was all steel, so it had like this grim quality to it. And he was convinced. He's just like, I don't know what this kid is going to do. He ain't going to make it as an artist. Maybe we can push him towards you know Hollywood. So. When you you get the best top mill, you head out to Portland. What is your position on the Coraline movie? What are you doing? Uh, they hired me as an armature assistant. So at that time, I was. Um, these puppets have like replaceable wire hands, basically, because the finger, like the fingers, are very small and they are uh, they break. So you right. have to make a bunch of backups. So at the time I started, I was just making little impossibly small um hands for Coraline and um but I brought in some stuff that I'd made cuz um you know I guess I wanted to show off a little bit and uh I think my supervisors were kind of like I think it was a good combination of me being like more capable than they had originally thought and I showed them some stuff that I'd made on my own um and also they just couldn't find experienced people that you know much were like to come the, on much like the guitar boss the guitar yeah. the guitar place they was he's getting not getting drunk he's dependable and he gives a shit yeah and i you know and i think you know there was a i'm always looking for um approval you know so i'm like yeah. hey look at what i did um so i think about four weeks in they promoted me to like you know not doing hands and putting um you know actually taking over some characters and 
So I don't know. If you watch that movie, I pretty much um, was was in charge of the armatures for Coraline and Miss Forcible. And um, but did you have to move them every 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 that 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 in itself of like how do you know how yeah. to move the characters and were you doing the moving or were you just doing like I'm behind the scenes just making sure it's everything going to work. Yeah, so let's we'll we'll back up a little bit. Um, so like stop motion animation is um, based on the idea of the persistence of vision animation. Um, uh, like okay, forty forty twenty four frames per second um, is like the film playback. So crazy um, if you if you look at um, I don't know. Um, in the early days of film, they've realized like, oh, I can have a guy standing there, and if I stop the film and have the guy walk off stage and then you know play the film back, the guy will disappear. And people were like, "Woo, that's magic." Um, and you know that sort of fast forward not very long, people realized you could do like fun tricks if you did one frame at a time, uh, which kind of led to stop motion animation being a thing where you could like take a picture and move an object just a little bit at a time and play it back and it comes to life. So um, that's the same, like you look at, I mean, King Kong seems super goofy when you watch it now, but um, it really was incredible. Edge. Yeah. It was incredibly um, innovative for its time. And, you know, it literally was scary for people. Um, who were watching it. Um, Clash the so, Titans scared that. Yeah. Oh, that Medusa, the Medusa scene with Clash of the Titans old school. I used to have to like prepare myself. I used to <laughs> literally have to like, Oh my God, they were going to see the face and the noise. And then the, it is the snakes, the hair snakes. I, yeah. I have to prepare myself for this. Yeah. And so the, the, what makes that animation possible is to be able to pose it um, predictably one frame at a time and and that comes from the armature and so that's made of um ball and socket joints which will give you you know kind of it's limited but fairly universal range um and then there's hinges which are linear um you know back and forth and then a right. swivel which will rotate um and so it's basically just a combination of these three types of movement that you put these armatures together and um, once, you know, like we're dealing with animators um, and obviously like the needs of the story um, of what these puppets are doing. So the performance and the acting and the anatomy of the, you know, character design uh, is kind of what dictates what joints we put where, but um, I don't know. I think early on on Coraline, I just, I had a knack for it, you know, like, um, it's, I guess the way there's a lot of people that do this that are just like way more interested in machining and way more like they're like, I'm not a super techie guy. Like I'm not, I'm not going to be the guy that sits here and figures out how to run the cam software. Um, but like, I, I do have a pretty good knack for what's going to look right when it moves. And, um, so I I think I've been moderately successful. <laughs> so then, so then, that. 
just out of curiosity, so some of these, like you were also on Paranorman, uh, Kubo and the Two Strings, the, this new movie with uh, uh, this newer movie, The Missing Link with uh, Hugh Jackman. And, and I, I look at all these movies and, I, and, and they're just like, I'm like, I know that it's got to be. I saw recently I saw something. And I don't know if it's on Facebook or something like that, but it was like a short sped up section of how long it takes to do like two seconds worth of 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 movement are there are the bodies like made out of clay or something I, no how do you, oh okay because i thought i was like why do you how do you get rid of the what if you push something wrong and all of a sudden you get a fingerprint or something yeah that's hardly anybody uses clay anymore um even like the wallace and gromit stuff um that's not much clay um at this point um no, like the puppets that we make are generally like a steel skeleton that's brazed together, this, you know, the armature. And then there are like foam latex or some sort of uh, urethane foam, which is soft and squishy, which right. is good for the movement, you know, like, um, uh, and then there's generally a layer of silicone over that, which gives it a good skin. And then there's like almost always there's some sort of costuming, which is like just literal clothing that's painstakingly, um, you know, patterned and stitched and like, yeah, it's, it's all impossibly stupid and difficult and is not a great reason for us to be doing this anymore other than it, it, it feels magical and we love it for whatever reason it's, it's, Definitely not the easy way to do anything. No, but it yeah. is, but there's a tactile quality to it that you just can't get in, you know, in, you know, CGI or, yeah. you know, or what my father would refer to as cartoonies. I think that, um, <laughs> especially, you know, there's so, I, I feel like you have so much, you know, it's so much, it is, it's more sculptural than it is painting. You know, you look at like a cartoon or something like that, even if it, when it was drawn by like Disney and you see the way that the movement is and it's like over-exaggerated, every little thing just moves. And I never could, my mind could never get, maybe it's because I'm dyslexic, but I could never get past how you get it all out and how you can kind of go from, you know, movement to movement and motion to motion and how you can envision it all. And it's just like, it's it's so super overwhelming to me, but what the thing is is interesting is especially with you is because you know you with the with the band and you know you're now you're you're the guy who's in the band who's expected to have this degree of uh, of discipline and you're not the 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 leader of the whole event. It is interesting to me that you, you, you were able to kind of fit into that position as easily as you were. Cause it seems like it's very demanding. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, and over the years I, um, became more involved. So I think somewhere on like after Coraline ended, the studio kind of didn't do much for a, a year or I guess about 18 months. Um, so I was at that point, me and a buddy, um, started doing like just some freelance jobs um mostly for like smaller studios and uh like a, the odd short film or student film but that was empowering for us because we realized that we could take these skills that we learned on you know this at that point Coraline was out and people had seen it and like it kind of gave us some cachet to be like yeah you know we're the ones that built these puppets um 
and then for us to be able to go out and do it like on our own in this tiny studio that we'd put together. Um, I, th I think that did wonders for our confidence and also just to be able to work on that skill set independent of uh, a lot of oversight. Right. Um, so when we came back, like for Paranorman, um, I was at that point like what I, the armature designer, I think was my, my title. So that's what it says on your IMDb. Oh yeah, there you go. I so I was, at, I gotta, you know, I don't fuck around here, Jeremy Space. I, I don't. I got it in front of me right here. I got your, I got your bio. I got everything. Yeah. So I, you know, I taught myself um, Autodesk Inventor. So at that point, I was like, you know, designing an entire, I don't know, like uh, ridiculous amount of like parts for our joint library. Um, so that was that was an exercise in discipline of just like how to make the same thing in nine sizes uh for 10 different styles of joint you know wow and then to quality control that and deal with the machine shop that was going to make it um you know that depending was depending on other people yeah it, you know and like for like i said i i made a lot of choices to work on I don't know, weak spots or blind spots. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to suck it up and like deal with these. Like when you're dealing with vendors in the fab world and you're like kind of a shy guy, like I feel that I mostly am, you know, like you always feel like an idiot. So I'm like talking to a guy at the machine shop about like tolerances on this part or, you know, what's the surface finish you want? And I'm like, oh, can you explain that to me? <laughs> oh, I love being an idiot. I, I, uh, I think being able to say I'm an idiot and what do, what do I care of what you think has yeah. freed me up. Yeah, like, I don't I've, know. I've grown into it. I remember getting uh, asking. I went to a, I went to a hardware store, and then I I I knew the hardware store people, and I uh, they knew I was a welder, and I was asking questions about soldering uh, pipes for uh, sink you know, like a water lines, you know, copper pipes. And then you were the, you know, you put the stuff in it and then you get the torch. And then you, you know, I asked him about it and he goes, you don't know how to do that. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know how to do it. No problem. I guess I'm telling you my, my, I'm telling you the things that I don't know. What else would you like me to tell you that I don't know how to do? And it was just like this moment of like, and I don't care. And yeah. I don't feel the need to, I don't feel the need to have to know everything. It's just like, I'm a dummy and it's fine. What's the top? Just tell me the tolerance. Don't ask me. Don't ask me, uh, you know, don't ask me any more questions. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I ride the line between being comfortable in that space and being like really self-conscious. Um, but you know, yeah, yeah. It's like, what are you going to do? You're going to pretend. You're going to pretend that you know all that stuff, and then just be a bigger idiot. A lot of so, people do. Yeah, it's a lot of people the, do. The worst. Now that it makes me it's interesting to me because one of the things that you've done, and we're gonna start to head into like you being a knife maker. And when I first met you at the Blade Show, I know exactly when I first met you. I first met you. I had been following you on Instagram. I'd already been a fan of your work, and I was walking through the tables, and there you were. You know, you had your table, and you had a you know, your regular T-shirt and a flannel shirt. Just not you're not wearing your you know spake knives shirt you were very very like <laughs> approachable and you were standing at the table and you were talking to michael trolsky and i was just like mm. oh that's jeremy spake holy shit there's fucking michael trolsky and i decided to go up and i want to apologize to you now because i know what i did and it was a very obnoxious what i did was i started to speak to, i interrupted by speaking polish to michael trolsky 
Oh. And I knew a few guys. I knew I worked with some people from Greenpoint, Brooklyn, Polish people. And I thought, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to break in with a little bit of, hey, yakshimas, June Kulio, you know, a little bit, a little bit of tiny, tiny Polish. And I know that I completely interrupted the conversation. It was so obnoxious and it was so, it was so egotistical. And I want to apologize, but you were so gracious. And we started to strike up a conversation. One of the things that was interesting to me was, you do something that I would never consider doing, which is you get tables at these knife shows. You put your work out and you're not shy. You're very approachable and you just talk about your work and you sit there and, you know, you, 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 you fool around with Don, Gwynn and Wynn and all your friends and, you know, you, you're having a good time. And, but you, you, you have allowed yourself. I've always been very uh, enamored with knife makers who, uh, will put themselves out there and you don't have a crew of dudes and you don't have your family there. Everyone's not wearing the spake shirt. You're just, you're there, you got your workout and it's immaculate and beautiful and just everything you want and the work that you've done. And, you know, like I said, you have the, you know, you, you know, the people that you, who have accepted you and, and see you as a, you know, awesome knife maker that, you know, you're very matter of fact, but the fact that you're so, you say that you're very shy and self-conscious shocks me. You have more balls than anybody I know because you're able to go out there and just sit down there and like feel all the dumb questions and allow people to t- pick your knife up and make a face or don't make a face. And, and, and I'm just, I, where did you get that set of balls to be able to do that? Hmm. Well, I think, you know, like working in the guitar store when I was in high school um, started to crack me up in a little bit. I mean, I still feel like an introverted, shy guy, even though I do pretty well in social um, um, you know, situations like that. But I, at a certain point, I, re, I just made a, a choice that I wasn't going to, uh, suffer in life because I was apprehensive. Right. right? So, um, part, I think that started when I realized like, I mean, I used to be so shy around any female right. at all. And like, working in a guitar store, like anyone that walks through that door, I would have to be like, Hey, can, what can we do for you? So that started things. And, um, you know, and then like being in a band, I don't know that, that didn't, it still doesn't make any sense to me. I don't understand where the compulsion to get up on a stage came from. Cause that's <laughs> the same thing. You're uh, up on stage. You're up on stage. You're the lead singer of the band. And now you're, you're self-conscious. It's just, it's just, yeah. it's shocking to me. Yeah. It's, you know, and yeah, I don't know. At, at a certain point, um, like working at, uh, at the old studio where I worked, um, I started volunteering for, um, like public speaking, um, events, things like that, volunteering for like guest tours when people would come through. Um, you know, it, and so I, because I was uncomfortable doing it, I kept volunteering to do it more, uh-huh. um, just to, you know, get that, get that out of there. Um, which, you know, I still get nervous and I don't know. I just, I feel like, um, there's something to be gained by putting yourself out there, um, becoming comfortable interacting with different types of people. Um, I think, you know, if most people were left to their own devices, they just, I don't know. But I'm, I, yeah, you're, I don't you're know. not wrong. You're, you're 100% yeah. right because 
this thing, this all this podcasting, I wanted to do it because I wanted to get beat. I obviously, when I was younger, I wanted to be a radio guy. But to me, I was talking to my wife. I was like, you know, I'm hoping that this helps me become a better speaker. Yeah. But if we had to do this in front of a crowd, I don't think I could do it. Yeah, you know, it, my thing is authenticity, right? And so, right. like, I, it's like, what I wish is I had a, I would like to be a better storyteller and I would like to be able to be a bit more performative um, in this stuff just to be entertaining. Um, Like, which I dabbled with. I did that talk last, um, last October at the um, blade show West. And I tried to tried to put some funny pieces in there and make it entertaining and not, not like a, a lesson, you know, but, um, yeah, I don't know. It's is it possible that when you're in a band and you've rehearsed the songs, you know what's going to happen, you get up on stage and you're basically just pushing play to the experience that you already have had and know what you're doing and it isn't that spontaneous. Do you think that that makes it much easier than getting up on stage and kind of leading something that you might not have done before? You know. Well, I you know, I think that the yeah, the, it's important not to be married to an outcome. And I think that's why I didn't have a lot of fun. Like in the years that I put the most work into music, I probably had the least fun because I was right. I was married to a certain outcome, which is never what's going to happen. Like it's, it's improvisational from the get-go, which I should have understood. All of my, all of my heroes were these like wild punk rock, people that just you know what comes is what comes um but you know my personality i guess is a little more focused on the outcome and i've tried to get away from that uh you know in in different facets of my life um and i think the more comfortable you can be in that improvisational zone whether it's i mean it could be knife making it could be you know music it could be conversation like you're never in control of the next step. Um, so to be comfortable in that space and not married to where things are headed, um, I think that's, that's just a good skill to have in general. I'm going to confound you now because that you lead me perfectly into, I don't know if you're right, because now we get into the knife making. Mm-hmm. Um, when did you first start making knives and what possessed you to start to make knives? Um, well that that is um it makes perfect sense you know you can easily draw a line backwards um and so when when i started making these armatures uh i took metalsmithing classes in school so in my mind i was going to learn how to like back in brazing yeah back in atlanta so um at georgia state they used to have a, a world-class um metalsmithing program this guy richard mafong um was in charge and i think he retired um a year or two after i started so it sadly went away um but anyway i i decided that i wanted to learn how to you know i was going to take this class so that i could have access to tools and and learn the skills to make these armatures but um i really enjoyed the like you know jewelry metalsmithing um aspect just the whole thing so 
I stayed with that all the way through college. And, um, one of the, one of the, do you have the, or anyone listening to this should have the complete metal Smith by Tim McCrate. It's, um, if you're doing anything with metal, it's, it's, it's basically the textbook and it is literally the textbook for most, um, intro jewelry metalsmithing courses. Um, and Tim McCrate also has, I don't know, maybe a dozen phenomenal books. Um, most of which I had and the, every, basically everything he, he had written that I didn't already own at one point I had on an Amazon guest, uh, Amazon wish list, And, um, my brother bought me one of these books and it happened to be Tim McCrate's books, uh, book on knife making, which I don't know is, I mean, it's, it's basically just that I didn't have any, any preconceived notion about wanting to make a knife other than here's something else that Tim McCrate can teach me. And, um, so I got that book for Christmas one year. And, um, I think the next year I was laid off from, uh, Coraline and was going to be making gifts for Christmas that year or for my, I think I made this knife, uh, for my girlfriend's birthday. Um, but anyway, it just, I made this knife from one of the, um, one of the lessons in that book, um, which I'm sure in retrospect, um, was not heat treated correctly. <laughs> right. I was about to ask you. <laughs> oh no, it was, I, I used Oh one, uh, Oh one tool steel and like, you know, heat treated it with a torch map gas torch, yeah. you know? I'm, yeah. So, but anyway, it's a very, I mean, it, if you look at that knife, I think it's on my website. It's, um, very obviously like a, basically a metalsmithing project more than a knife. Um, but I did have a lot of fun doing it. And, uh, so that was sort of my toe in the door. And, um, did you find an easy transition between, um, doing the kind of machining and the metalworking and the hands-on use of files? And did you have that transition from the armatures to the knife making to be easy? Or did you feel like it was kind of like an easy step? Well, foolishly, I thought, you know, I've got all the tools I need to make knives. This will be effortless. Um, But there was an ease to it. Like, well, okay. So a few minutes ago, I had to describe to you, like, in order to tell you what I did on those movies, I had to basically go back and tell you how film works, right? Right. (laughs) Um, If I showed you an armature that I've made, there'd be a hundred questions. Like, wait, what? you make a knife and you hand it to someone and they know exactly what it is. They know exactly what it's for. You know, most people can tell if it's any good pretty quickly. Um, so after I'd made a a couple of knives, I just like, it was so gratifying to be able to have, you know, it's like I could use some tools that I already had and it was liberating because I didn't have to do like tons of design work. I mean, most of what I've made um, is fairly free form. I don't, I don't do a lot of, um, well, I do now, but in, in the first few years I was making knives, I didn't do a lot of plans. I just rough things out and, uh, you know, improvised. And, um, of course, you learn, oh, if, <laughs> if you do a drawing first, it looks a lot more like what you had in your head. Right. Um, so you know, that's changing. But in the early days, especially it was, it was very gratifying to be able to make something and show it to someone 
have them appreciate it and understand it. Um, I, there's, I think you've mentioned this line from like that Bob Loveless video where he's talking about knives and tools and, you know, it's, it's this very like poetic yeah. thing about a, a, a tool. And uh, I, I have to agree with that sentiment. Well, you know, it's interesting because especially considering, I think the Bob Loveless, t- the, the quote, and I'm going to off, I'm going to screw it up, but I love it because, you know, he's wearing this, you know, he's saying, he's saying, you know, this is something that's going to last forever made by these two hands. And it was very like down the line and it'll be used. And it was very like romantic of the American dream and the working man and, you know, being able to like use your hands and your mind to make, yeah, using your hands and your mind to make something. And meanwhile, he's wearing this like fruity <laughs> railroad conductor hat. Which I is, love those hats. <laughs> the hat of the Bob Loveless, creator of the Bob Loveless Bolt. He's one of the greats of all time. Oh my God damn. I don't know who gave him those hats to put on. He must've been colorblind or something, but if they're the greatest hats of all time, I love a Bob Loveless. No, I think I read that he had those custom made. From where? From like I don't know. You know, first of like what was it? Uh, H&R Puff and stuff. They're unbelievable. <laughs> that's a that's a deep cut, guys, ladies and gentlemen. That's a that's like a like a old school Muppets. But yeah. um, I'm I'm interested because when you said earlier saying that uh, when in terms of public speaking and this and that other thing and how you know being on stage and doing a, a um, singing in a band, you are you are it's it's very dictated you there's not a lot of uh there's not a lot of uh ability to be spontaneous and create that uh create that spontaneous you know moment the more you get into knife making especially at the caliber that you're at you're at the same position there isn't a lot of especially considering that you kind of focus on this american style of a puko which is you know, it's a it's a short knife, but around and pardon me if I'm not saying this correctly, but it's around the size of like a paring knife. You know, they're not super long, and generally they don't have like you know a, 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 a finger guard or anything like that. They're kind of meant to be like a Scandinavian. Uh, and I'm I'm saying this with my eyes open, like I'm hoping you're going to correct me, but like almost like oh. a carving <laughs> knife or so, like a carving knife or something like that. So it's not meant for, you know, it's not really, it's like a all-in-one kind of carving knife, not really meant for fighting, not really, I mean, it's, you couldn't really use it as a culinary knife because there's no, the heel is, doesn't come past where, you, you know, the, the handle is. So, but it is very, very, especially at the level that you do, it's a very, very structured you know, knife that it would be hard, I would imagine, to kind of be spontaneous. Well, something I learned in um, in college, doing my graphic design stuff, um, I work really well with limitations. So, like for, and you know, I I I discovered these like the. Scandinavian style, like the Puko style knife. Um, basically when I started, like I'd made a few knives and I was like, I don't, <laughs> I need to learn more about knives. And um, I just was doing these Google image searches and um, saving every knife that I liked. And I was looking at my folder and this word Puko kept coming up and I was like, what, what is that? And then obviously discovered that this was a style of knife and, so I looked more into that and I was like, yeah, I, you know, I like these knives cause they don't, they look useful. You, you just look at it 
it seems utilitarian. It does not seem macho in any way. There's no like tactical bullshit. Yeah, I don't know. I, it just looks like it's a beautiful object. Right. There's history that looks it. useful, and there's history to it. And there's also like you know, excuse me. There's no, some no, boundaries. No, no. I like um, it. you're the first burp on this podcast, and I appreciate. Oh. I might have burped once a couple episodes ago, but I, I thank you. Yeah, I I can do more. I can. Uh, oh, go. I, we got away. some time Fire left. Away, Maybe Jeremy. we can cry. Fire away. Um, no, um, but you know, like I. The 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 limitations, I guess. Um, I feel like you know you can put a fence up and you can do whatever you want to within that fence. And to me, that gives me a lot more of a creative mindset than um, do whatever you want, because do whatever you want. Um, that that includes a bunch of really really dumb things. Right. So. Um, when I can build, like, you know, I like this sort of aspect of tradition, but I also like the fact that I'm not reinventing the wheel and I don't like, <laughs> I'm not trying to convince anyone that like it's innovative. I think uh, that's a word that is very interesting, kind of funny. Um, but, you know, within these, within these boundaries, I feel like I can do pretty much whatever I want. And, um, there are definitely some, like the way that a Puko is, is thought of in Finland is different from the way it's thought of in Norway and Sweden, you know, so there's all this stuff, but as someone on the outside, I don't belong to any of those traditions and I can just, you know, take what I like, take what's useful, take what works, takes what looks good out of any of those traditions and, um, and, and use them uh appropriately and bend the rules here and there um but it still presents as something that people generally think of as like oh is that a puko um which you know for me it may or may not be i mean i i've gotten to know a few people that are <laughs> a lot more hardcore about this this kind of thing and right. it's like oh well that's not a puko because blah 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 and like yeah. well there's a lot of you know, I don't care. Right, right. Well, so just to back it up a little bit, you you kind of made a noise that I really want to kind of in, investigate. It wasn't the burping noise. The burp? No, 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 no. It wasn't the burp. Afterwards, you kind of made a little bit of a noise when you said the word innovation, and and I'm interested in why you said that because I'm part of me thinks that I think that there's an arrogance with a lot of makers, either sculptors, craftsmen or whatever. And I think it, it, it stems from a degree of what's my role in this and where do I fit in, in this, in this role? And it do, does my need to be innovative dictate whether or not this is valid or not? Is that what you were kind of making a, a noise about or? Yeah. I, I mean, I don't have any interest in that whatsoever. Like I, I well, it's just like what the, <laughs> I mean, what's at the root of like making a claim like oh, I'm innovative? It's a competitive thing. You're trying to. You're, ma I don't know that that claim. It's like tr it's compensating for some other lack. Like it I is don't 100. percent I don't understand why you have to say that you're innovative if your stuff is already good. Um, I mean, and that's something. <laughs> no, come on, man. I'm with you. I listen. I believe no, like, that people need to. I believe that. 
people who are craftsmen who are going to be in something that's a degree creative have to figure out how to be more innovative if they're not going to if they if they don't want to be washed away and innovation can in my opinion innovation has to be also innovation of your own business yeah well um full disclosure i don't make knives for a living so i'm sitting over here on the sidelines kind of like i just do what i want um which is the which is most likely the better idea I, I believe that's true, but I also know that, um, well, you know, we'll tie it back into my music. Like I always did exactly what I wanted to do, but we weren't selling out shows. You know what I mean? Like, and I didn't have a care in the world for making, you know, I, I felt like enough, if enough people found what I was doing, there would be enough people that liked it, that it would be worthwhile. Uh, there was never a financial impact one way or the other because I knew that I was not going to rely on that for income. And, and it's kind of the same thing, same with, thing my, with the knives. Yeah, same thing with the knives. Hmm. So, you know, at a certain point, you're I doing might, it for the love. You're yeah, doing I do it because it it's cool. You're you're doing it because I feel like, and it's the knife making and the music. I feel like. You have you've put those on such a high pedestal that if you were to put them in a position of dependence, you might uh, corrupt the uh, the purity of your your idea. Yeah, well, which is what happened with my my career in animation. I mean, that was a that was my passion hobby, you know, for years, and then I started doing it for a living, and it's like <laughs> this is not what I want to do at home anymore. Um, which kind of led into, you know, the, the, the knives, I wanted to work with my hands and use skills that I already had. Um, but, um, yeah, I just sort of morphed into the next thing, um, which, I mean, I can tell you and, and, you know, like once you're doing what, well, you, you never really had knife making as a hobby. You just started that as a business, right? I, well, yes. The answer is the answer is it just fed into what I was already doing. Right. With so, a few yeah. adjustments, it fed into a better version of what I was doing. Yeah. Financially. Right. So I'll be honest with you. When I was at when I was at the first, all the metal shops I was ever at, and I, I have the first sword I ever made, which I made when I was 17. I have it hanging on my shop. It is made out of a piece of a uh, hot rolled steel. And that I just bent over an anvil with a hammer and I slapped a handle on it. I sharpened the shit out of it and it is a piece of hot rolled steel. <laughs> it is a piece of hot rolled steel. It looks cool for a 17 yeah. year old, but that's about it. When we had ki kids come in and who wanted to work with us because they thought they were going to be, you know, Thor and or whatever. We, we, and they said, we make sword. I, I will work at the, at the Renaissance fair. I make armor and, fool around with swords and stuff we're like we don't want you i th used to think it was a joke i thought we had no interest in it we had no interest in knife making no interest in swords we thought they were you know larping people you know people yeah. who are cosplay and all that we're like i don't want to do that i want to make railings so when we finally started making the knives i was just like jesus christ i can sell more of these and i can make sculpture and it, right. and it was really that was really the thing it was like otherwise i was gonna have to go back in a metal shop so the, yeah. and the answer is is like you know 
I I have a I I I'm a hands off a little bit to 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 a, to a degree. Like I don't run into the first knife shop I see when I'm on vacation. I'm just like, all right, we're good. Congratulations. It doesn't yeah. interest me at all. Yeah, and you know, it's a, I'd say it's similar with you know I I'm not nearly as passionate about you know stop motion animation um, as I used to be. Um, you know, as a consumer. Um, but you know, that sort of, t- some of that ties into, um, the thing with innovation, like the studio where I used to work was so fixated on just basically, I felt like taking everything I loved about the magic and weirdness and clunkiness of stop motion and stripping that away and replacing it with something really slick and modern and technology based um whether that was something you saw on screen or something in the process and it just i don't know it really it i've spent a lot of time thinking about what is the point um what is what are the goals of innovation are you like i feel like it's very easy to um well you're justifying your relevancy well, you're putting the cart before the horse. You're like, your, your, your goal is innovation, not to solve a problem. I agree. And, um, I think that is, it's, it's so boring. Like so your, your definition is much more realistic than mine is. Mm. Mine is, is almost, is, is like, is the, the, is a very shallow, is a, is a much more shallow, uh, reason. It isn't the purity of, of being able to solve a problem. Innovation is, you know, the expression mother, uh, innovation is the mother of invention. Is that right? Invention mm. is one of the ways, you know what I'm talking Frank about. Zappa? I don't know. What, what is, you know what I'm talking about? The, uh, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And my opinion is, is, is as opposed to, I'm not, I'm in a, I'm in a position of, I'm in a flooded market that the, the, that I'm not going to solve someone's problem. I'm hoping that they're going to want my product to solve their problem and it's all it is an innovation is i'm trying to you know it's almost like a dog and pony show you know so it's it isn't but i i i believe that that's the concept of innovation you got to be able to stand out and it is the impure definition of innovation i'm not trying to solve someone's problem you've caught me i'm a fraud i mean it it really (laughs) is i mean you're much more i mean it's very clear and i've always known this about you you're much more of a purist than i am Mm-hmm. Are you in what true? way? All right. I mean, I think that I, since I've met you, you're very, you've always been incredibly polite, incredibly pleasant. I always enjoy the times I've spent with you when we talk and do stuff. But you're in terms of and now and that I've heard all your music, now that I've seen your knives, your work is exquisite. Um, and you're very, you know, very soft spoken. And, 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 you know, even the fact that I'm looking at your IMDb. You know the missing link, Kubo on the two strings, Paranorm and Coraline. These are the top of the food chain in terms of, you know, popular stop motion, you know, movies. And you, you know, this is the first I've known about it. You don't say a peep about it. You know. <laughs> well, I mean, part of that. Uh, we're we're going to get into it. Um, you know, when I moved when I moved out here to work on Coraline, that was like. I put so much of myself into that and you get, it's very easy to get your, especially coming from a background where like I have a band that is my music right? and I play my music with my best friends and we, 
do everything together and we're a very tight knit group of people and this is what I do and who I am. And then you go, you know, you're working 50 hours a week on this intense project and everybody's, you know, super focused and you've like, Oh, now I'm putting myself into this project with my friends and we spend all of our time together. Um, so you get, it's, it's can be dangerous to getting your identity wrapped up into someone else's thing. Cause it's, it's not your thing anymore. And yet you treat it like you have, I don't know. It was, it's a good lesson to learn. Um, and I mean, I, I don't know if this is still, I used to have this blog, like when Coraline was coming up or about to be released, I had like, I was doing all this, like blogging about it and promoting it and, you know, like fast forward 10 years and this like studio doesn't care about you. They're like, they're not even doing things that you're all that interested in. You're just still there because it's good money. And, you know, so it's like you have to unwrap your, your identity in this thing that, that used to be so important. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I don't, I don't think, I mean, and part of it also is like NDA is like, you're working on a big studio project. I'm not, you you can't really talk about it on social media um even after it's done uh after it's done i don't know i <laughs> i left that old job at my old studio under um like less than great circumstances so i wasn't gotcha super stoked to be promoting <laughs> missing link obviously yes <laughs> um, i can only imagine <laughs> <laughs> but um you know it's it, it it's um it was a good lesson about identity and uh, putting all your eggs in someone else's basket. Well, it's, that is actually a very difficult situation because, you know, when you, when you're, especially when your heart is, you know, you're, you're a purist. And I think that, you know, when you do things they are very, you're very direct. And I think that you put, it seems as though I'm making assumptions that you put everything into it and for you not to get back you know, what you kind of think you deserve, it can be very, it can be very, uh, uh, it can make you bitter. Well, I mean, resentment is like the worst thing and it's the last place you want to be, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's, it can be a trap, you know, like on, I can be idealistic about that stuff. And, at, and then, you know, it's like that company's, um, owned and financed basically by Phil Knight you know, the Nike founder. Yeah. And it's like, you're not going to find it's, it's a corporation. You know what I mean? It's like this, it's a, it's a corporation run by a billionaire. So, um, the human touch is not what you're looking for and you shouldn't be looking for it either. So I, I, I would remind myself of that scene from Mad Men where like, um, Peggy's like complaining about not getting credit. And Don Draper's like, that's what the money's for, right. you know, like, um, I think that represents that relationship pretty accurately and fairly. Um, you know, like I'm not, I'm not expecting, and one shouldn't expect, um, you know, the soft touch from corporate America. <laughs> that's tough. I have a, I have a resentment quote that I've been slugging around for a while that I love and it's, it's, it is totally true. And it has made me you know, try to change the way I think of resentment. It's basically, it's resentment is like swallowing poison and, and, and expecting the other person to die. 
Yeah, totally. You know? It's it's the worst. So it's a it's a mindset that I so you try have, to avoid. So you have a. It's very clear that you've you know part of this is and you and I are not that. I mean, I'm, I'm much older than you. I think. I think I'm I'm forty. I'm a forty six, and you're probably like 41, 40, 41. Something like that. <laughs> I don't know. I think I'm 43. Oh, 43. 1978. Congratulations. Yeah. So I think that that also comes with age because, you know, that the concept of, you know, that idealistic idea of what you want to be doing. And then all of a sudden it's like, as you grow, you're just like, eh, Phil and I don't care about me very much. And then why should I care about him? And it becomes this, it becomes something that you kind of settle into in terms of your age of, of just like getting an idea of your own value. And I, and I, and I, and you know, I mean, the guys on the, on knife talk, make jokes about how old I am. And they're just looking for something to make jokes about because they could use some more jokes. That's for sure. So <laughs> shots fired, shots fired, ladies and germs. You'll take them. But at the same time, I would never trade my age right now for, for being younger because I feel like I have completely I'm 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 a such more at one with me being at the age I am and and also saying putting my hands up and saying I don't know everything it's fine no problem yeah. I'll just you know it doesn't matter anymore it doesn't matter if I don't know it I'm going to learn it or I'm going to be invo- involved in it and I think that that's very close to who you are in terms of just like you know the, maybe the maybe the you know the honeymoon's over in terms of this but you you understand it and you're going to make it work now what I want to know is what I want to know is when, now this is something, you know, when you and I first met, we, uh, I have funny little stories. Uh, when Jeremy and I first met, um, I don't know if it was when we first met, but maybe the second time I went to Blade Show, we, uh, Tony, my business partner, and I went to down in Atlanta. We signed a deal with uh, the chef down in Atlanta and then we signed it and we were pumped and we celebrated. We celebrated a little too hard. We were drinking bourbon at the bar. I don't know if you were at the bar with us that night and we were, you know, drinking Weller and drinking all this bourbon. The next morning, we'll roll out of bed. Tony's dead to the world. Come down for breakfast and there's Jeremy Spake and Jeremy and I had breakfast and that became our thing. At, uh, I like to think it's our thing. Is It's definitely our thing. All right. So when we go to Blade Show, we have a Saturday morning, whatever, we, we roll it out and try to figure out where we are and we go have some breakfast. And then the next year, last year, we had the table of tables. We had the table of tables. And Jeremy and I sit down there, and all of a sudden, here comes Charlie Lionheart. Charlie Ellis is down there. And then here comes Will Stelter running in with his, his shirt tucked in like a, like a trooper, <laughs> like a, a young, that young uh, all-American, you know, Eagle Scout he is. And then here comes Norman Rockwell. Norman Rockwell. He is Norman Rockwell. And here comes Mareko Momas. He didn't get any sleep. He, he, he's cranky, and we're all sitting around eating breakfast and shooting the shit and and it was it was one of those things that was just like it was a real fun experience that's one of the things i enjoyed very much and then you and i started talking and you were talking not at breakfast but afterwards you were thinking about you were thinking about taking the journeyman smith the abs journeyman smith test and that's when i started saying i believe in you i believe in jeremy spake's road to victory <laughs> will yeah. you will you i know that you took a break from that will you reconsider and go back and take the journeyman smith at some point oh absolutely i mean i um i started the knives i've got i think three i mean everybody tells you you have to do um 
you know, make more than you're going to submit because one of them's going to have something messed up. So I think I've I've got four out of the six blades. Um, oh, really? All re- well, they're forged. They're not ground. Um, but I've got designs drawn out. Um, I you know got got underway with them. But um, yeah, I, I mean it's a weird situation because these are knives that have to be really nice, and they're also knives that are, for the most part, not knives like what i do um so what's your plan of attack i want to know what your plan of attack is well uh, um i think one of them is like an integral chef knife one of them is um like kind of a um a frame handle you know short like a vest bowie knife kind of like um you know like a very quisenberry influence type thing um I've got, I don't know, there, there's six of them, and one of them's like more like a Puko style knife, but um, most of them are more traditional uh, uh, ABS style, which I'm super into. I mean, I, this comes up on Knife Talk a lot where people, you know, him and haw about all that. But again, like, I like this idea of boundaries because you can do whatever you want. And again, it's like, I, I don't know. I, I like the idea of making knives that I'm not used to and that I might not make again um, because it's a chance for me to learn how to do it. Um, I've talked to knife makers like, oh, I'm not going to make that. I'd never make that again. What's the point? It's like, well, point is learning how to do something that you don't know how to do. Yeah. <laughs> Which, um, you know, like, I don't know. I'm, I'm open to any learning experience and, uh, the it it seems like something that will be fun when i can get the time to do it uh i kind of got wrapped up about three years ago where i was taking too many commissions and you know still like i was adding shows to my show calendar taking on more commissions and more like collaborative you know um hey can you I mean, you know how these time vampires can work. Time um, vampires. I love it. With, you know, the emails and the, well, what if, what right. if, you know, and so things just, everything got away from me. So I, I stopped taking custom orders and um, was just going to make show knives. Um, and then I, like, I don't really have my shop set up right now because I, ugh. Um, Don't worry about I basically that. lost my shop in a breakup. And so I had this really tuned in um, shop, which I now kind of have broken into a couple of different locations. It's just not ideal. Right. Um, when the time is right, you'll, yeah. you know, you'll get it all back together. Yeah. It sucks, man. I haven't finished a, a knife in over a year. Like I've certainly been working on projects, but um, I haven't completed anything for 13 months or mm. so. It's, it's frustrating insane yeah (laughs) Yeah. i'm Um, i'm interested i i love what you said in regards to limitations because i do remember um when i was in arts when i was in art class and i was in the college level art class and we'd have these sculpture we'd have these sculpture uh classes and there was a there was a project there were very finite details you know there were very uh a lot of rules i always did better when there were more rules than when we had free reign and it yeah. got to the point, I mean, that's the reason why I started making the lures is because the, the, the project was take something small and make it big. 
Right. And I was doing a pile of fishing and it was just like, oh, let's make this Rapala big. And it was, it was, I mean, it really changed the way I, I mean, it changed everything. Like the rules a lot of times give you more freedom because it reins you in in regards to what you're really meaning to do. It like focuses you and then yeah. you can, you can actually, I feel like you are right. You are given more creativity when you do have certain rules. Yeah. And I mean, you can, you can master all the intricacies about it. You can, you can push it this way. You can subvert it. You can like, you, it becomes, it, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, well, knife I making agree. isn't generally considered. I mean, I also can think, I think that it's very constraining in regards to, well, you know, that, you know, innovation, it's very constraining in regards to creativity. And the funny thing is, is when you talk about, you know, um, your, your, the, your strategy for when you submit for the ABS is well, we just talked to, to Jason Knight and he was just like, I want it. I don't give a shit about the, the fit and finish. Obviously he does, yeah. but he's looking for, he was looking for somebody to be really like blowing the doors out and being super innovative. I think he's looking for everybody to be Joshua Prince, be honest with you and yeah. like be, you know, almost off the wall crazy. And then the fit and finish comes later. I don't think, but at the same time, when you're testing fit and finishes, it seems as though that's what passes you. Like you, you gotta. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've I've talked to enough of the old guard ABS guys to to know what they're looking for in general. I know that. Well, I also know that Jason Knight doesn't seem to be doing testing anymore. Well, yeah, you just said um, you're not doing it anymore, so you don't have to worry about that. Yeah, but and you know, again, I um, like I'm not doing ABS because I think it's going to add value to my knives or any of that. It's because I'm self-conscious and need someone's approval to know that I'm a good boy and I'm doing, <laughs> I'm doing really? it good You really think that's it? I mean, it's, I don't know. I yeah. would think it's a feather in your cap. Like I don't necessarily, I mean, I get uh, you know, six of one, half a dozen of the other. Okay. Right? That's fair. That's fair. That's fair. I'm fascinated that you say that because you know, then who, then who are you looking for approval when you were making music? I don't get that. Yeah, I know. It's this is an egg that I feel like if I could if I could crack this egg, um, crack this nut, right. whatever. Um, egg is fine. Yeah, it, it would that would be like the um, the I could put it all together. I don't think you, I don't think you want to. I don't think I don't think a lot of people don't want. I, I think it's too hard to. I think it's too hard to put that together. Yeah, because because back then I didn't care that I couldn't play right. guitar well. Um, I didn't care that my voice kind of sucks. Um, I didn't care about any of that. I could stand on stage confidently and do it. And I could hand you my CD and be like, this is, this is what I do. And this is me, you know, but um, with, with so much else, it's kind of like, I don't have that confidence. I mean, part of that, like growing up within the culture of like skateboarding and punk rock and having all these like, you know, like Henry Rollins and Ian McKay kind of wrote the book already. So you can, you can be confident that they knew what they were doing. And those are some pretty good role models to have. Uh, if you're kind of a rebellious spirit. Um, so I, I never felt self-conscious about any of that stuff, but, um, because that was sort of a subculture outside of the mainstream. And, uh, even though knives are kind of a, 
weirdo thing. Um, I guess I feel like I'm in a, I'm in an environment where I have to be more, uh, more appropriate to the mainstream culture, you know? And like, and it makes me a little self-conscious because I'm not, I'm not in my own little niche world, Hmm. which again, you know, like I've been trying to put myself into those situations more to, to, to be more um, effective outside of my comfort zone. You fascinate me, Jeremy Spake. <laughs> always have, always have. And, and, and I think that you're very thoughtful. And I think that, I think that a lot, you know, this stupid podcast, I, I, I originally just wanted to do dick jokes. And, and I thought it was like the antidote to knife talk because I get so, I, I get so like talking about knives all the time can get a little bit down. And I'm convinced that all people who make things, they all have very similar uh, reasoning why they make things. It doesn't really matter what they make. And I'm convinced that there are, you know, personal reasons and um, you're trying to, you're, 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 the concept of making something with your hands that, you know, Bob Loveless said, there's nothing better at, at it. But once you've made it, how it's perceived is more difficult than the actual making it because the intention is there you know the intention is there but how people interprets that intention can be crippling you know it's that's part of the being self-conscious you know you know what you did uh but you don't know how other people are going to do when i had a shop in in greenpoint brooklyn the whole building did a a walk art walkthrough and people could you know they in the beginning they had like a you know you could go through people's studios it was studio visits I never felt more vulnerable than <laughs> seeing these couples with like a, you know, a toothpick with a cantaloupe and a glass of wine and a Dixie cup looking around and sneering and then just kind of like chatting and then looking at the wall and just kind of walking away from something that I believed was important to me to the point where there was a couple of years where I was just like, I don't want my doors open. I don't even want to be involved with this because I can't handle the being able to see people coming into my space, people seeing what came out of in my mind, my heart and my hands and my work. And I can't, I can't handle being dismissed in my shop. It was too vulnerable. And I think that there's a lot of that in regards to when you make something and then you make it and you're looking at it and you're like, Oh, this is, you know, this is what I want to put out in the world. How it's perceived is very difficult. Yeah. I, but you're will, but you, Jeremy Spake, are willing to do it because I see you at that table at the Blade Show every year. I see you with a smile on your face, dealing yeah. with these ham and eggers who like to grab it and ask you stupid questions, and you know, and then you're not like you're not like immediately telling them to fucking put it to put it down. You know, yeah. you're you're allowing yourself to be very vulnerable in 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 the world, and it's. It's much more courageous than I would. I wouldn't do it. Well, I have to give credit. I probably wouldn't do, be doing shows if it weren't. So like my first teacher in knife making was Murray Carter, who obviously is well known for his knives and his marketing. You know, he's very um, upfront about, about a lot of, well, a lot of that stuff. So um, I met him and um, I mean, this is crazy knowing what I know about him now, like I, I saw his book, which had just come out and, um, 
saw that he lived like the next town over. And I can't remember if I wrote him an email or gave him a phone call, but I was just like, Hey, I'm just some dumb guy. I've made like two knives. Can I show them to you? And you tell me if they're any good. And he invited me out to his house uh, after work one day. And um, he was just very complimentary to me and um, to the knives. And, you know, I think he saw that I put some intention and effort into them. And um, he asked me like, so why did you, why did you come out here? Why did you like, do you want to do this for a living? Do you want to like, what, why are you asking me if they're any good? Why do you need to know if they're good? Do you want to, what are your intentions here? And I was like, well, I guess I want to be a better knife maker. I, I, I do want to be a better knife maker. And I think that, um, him asking me that question gave me a great chance to frame it in my mind, like, yeah, this is actually something I want to get good at. And, um, so I, he kind of took me under his, um, supervision. I took a class from him. Um, and, uh, the idea was like, we're going to do a three day class. And at the end of that, you're going to have 10 Sanmai blades and you're going to finish them by next year to do the Eugene show. And so, um, that's going to be our deal. And, uh, so he kind of kept me going on that and, um, you know, it was very like, I show him my progress on stuff and he'd be like, yeah, this is good. This isn't so good. And, um, and then we, you know, the next year came around and I did the Eugene show and he was like, yeah, these are good knives. You got nothing to, nothing to worry about. And, um, I got best new maker at that, that show. And so, you know, having him as a mentor, gave me a lot of confidence um i think to to feel comfortable in that environment and not feel like i was um you know like asking too much he gave me some great advice on pricing because i was like you know i i don't know i'm a new guy should i be selling these knives for 50 bucks or 300 bucks and he said um well you know what they're worth to you and you know how much time you put into them you know, like most of the people in this room are not going to spend over, you know, X amount of money. And so you shouldn't worry about what they think. If those people come to your table and say, oh, that's too much. Like, don't worry about that because they're not going to buy your knife anyway. So, you know, I think that that gave me an edge over a lot of my worry that I was going to seem like a you know, a fraud or something going and getting a table to show as like, you know, a, a first or second year knife maker. I'm, 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 it's a, it's a great story. And I, and I, and I think that there's a lot more coming your way. I, I, I find that, like I said, you're one of the more interesting people that I know you. I'm fortunate to call you my friend and I'm fascinated by what's next for you. And I'm no, and I know I always sent you this this stupid hashtag, Jeremy J Spake Road to Victory, because I just see I, I you have everything in you that I don't have. You have you have so many. I'm very envious of your personality because I'm not a purist, and I'm not, and I'm not someone who uh, I'm not a purist, I, I, and I'll never be a perfectionist, nor do I think I want to. And, and I'm just, I'm fascinated by you and what you're going to do next. And I, and, and I can't wait to find out. 
Well, thanks. Uh, I'm glad you're. Um, I'm gonna. I'm gonna keep you on your toes. Hopefully, I'll finish a knife this year. You keep me up. You do whatever the hell you want, <laughs> Jeremy Spake. Listen, it was a pleasure to have you on. As always, I knew it was gonna be. And I, absolutely. And you, and you were very. And you know, just just all the thing is, you were. You sent me the best. I mean, if I had guests send me a one sheet on on you on them i would be it would be a lot less work for me you're a very very thoughtful person and i could tell the way you speak i can tell with the pauses and everything like that you're very conscious of what you're going to say and i i hope at some point you can you're gonna you're gonna the 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 fires are gonna go away you're gonna have a time to not worry about the pandemic and all this nonsense and you're gonna get back to it because i believe in you jeremy spake jeremy spake road to victory well, thanks, Jeff. Um, it was good to um, forget about the apocalypse outside, if only for a couple of hours. There we go, and that's all. And that's all there needs to be said. Jeremy Spake, go follow Jay Spake on Instagram. It's worth it. He's a fantastic guy. I wish there was a way that you could post your music because I think that the, the, I think that everyone would be very impressed because it is awesome sounding music. I hope at some point you figure something out because it's terrific. Yeah, maybe I'll throw up uh, throw it up on band camp or something you should definitely throw it up because i think i think you'd be shocked at how many people would really enjoy it so go follow jeremy spake jay spake on instagram you don't do a lot on facebook he know he knows he's getting to the point where he don't want to hear what aunt alice has to say anymore neither do yeah. i and and uh and that's it so go if you do me a favor i'm not gonna i know you guys all say to me oh, you, all you want to do is reviews and if you go to itunes and help me out it helps me out so period so go to itunes give us a five-star review give us a review Say something nice. Go on Instagram. Follow us at the Full Blast Podcast on Instagram, and you can interact. I'm not asking any more questions because you know why? Some of you people have to give me the worst questions ever, and I'm, every time I get bad questions, all I can think of to myself is oh, I'm on my own. So with with Jeremy, I didn't have to be on my own because he's got a he's got a story upon him. So next week we got uh, uh, Brett McAfee, Skull and Spades 13. I got a special special coming up, and I got. Like, believe it or not, we're gonna Alex Pohl's coming on the podcast. I got a I got a big call from Alex Pohl. He's gonna come on. We're gonna talk to him. We got a lot of other guys. I'm very excited. Thank you for all your kind words. Everyone went ape shit when on the uh, Chris Cash episode, which I appreciate. And he's such a good dude, and we had a great time. So, so once again, thanks very much, everybody. And uh, you know, we'll see you next week. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.